0: From the heart of our nation's capital, here's Family Research Council President Tony Perkins.
1: Good evening and welcome to this Friday edition of Washington Watch. I'm Joseph Backholm. I'm a Senior Fellow for Biblical Worldview and Strategic Engagement at Family Research Council. It's my pleasure to be sitting in with you and for Tony today it's that time again. It is election season. Election day is November 8th. And this is a consequential election, of course, as they all are. And what you don't want to do is fill out your ballot without the best Information available. And we want to make it very easy to get the best information available. And we have done so. What you can do is text the word guide to 67742. It really just takes seconds. The number is 67742. Text the word guide to receive a voter guide for your location. Tell all your friends as well. Text the word guide to 67742 for great voter information. Today on the program, A state delegate in Virginia says she wants legislation that would provide criminal penalties for parents who do not affirm their child's gender identity. We'll tell you a little bit more about that story as well. Michigan also has a pro-abortion referendum, but there is concern increasingly that it could affect a lot more than just abortion. We'll talk about the details there. Also in our worldview conversation, we're gonna continue to unpack the controversy around Christian nationalism why exactly is it such a hot topic and are progressives and secularists just as religious as christians some video from the university of minnesota school of medicine suggests the answer is yes we'll share that with you later today but our headline for today this week 40 republican members of congress sent a letter to fbi director christopher ray demanding a briefing on the fbi's use of the face act to target pro-life Americans. In their letter, the lawmakers stated, quote, overzealous prosecutions under the FACE Act weaponize the power of federal law enforcement against American citizens, end quote. They concluded, quote, it is clear that congressional scrutiny of the FBI's use of the Freedom of Access to Clinic Entrances Act is needed, end quote. Based on what we've seen in recent weeks, such was with the, such as the 11 pro-life a- advocates indicted in Tennessee, is there any doubt that the FACE Act is not being applied as Congress intended? Joining me now to discuss this and more is one of the signers of the letter. It's U.S. Representative Andy Biggs. He's a member of the House Judiciary Committee and the House Committee on Oversight and Government Reform. He represents Arizona's 5th District. Congressman Biggs, welcome back to the show.
2: Thanks, Joseph. Good to be with you.
1: Good to have you. I want to get into the FACE Act questions, but before we do, I want to ask you a a question about the story that was discussed much on the program yesterday uh, about President Biden's conversation with the Saudis or alleged conversations. News broke yesterday from the Saudis. They said he asked them to delay the oil cuts for one month. And of course, that request has received a lot of scrutiny because we all know what's happening within the next month. That is an election which raises a lot of questions about whether President Biden didn't go to the Saudis to essentially solicit a campaign contribution by delaying these cuts so gas prices wouldn't go up. Should we believe the Saudi report on this? What's the response
2: from Congress? Well, I know I can accept it Uh, Pretty easily, quite frankly, because we saw the same thing uh, two years ago with the suppression of the Hunter Biden computer where the FBI ostensibly went to Facebook, according to Mark Zuckerberg, and said suppress the, the Hunter Biden laptop and other stories. And so this is not out of the ordinary for this administration or these people on the far left. They blame everybody else for meddling with elections. But this certainly looks like election meddling to me. And, um, and you know, it's not working because gas prices certainly here in Arizona are going up anyway.
1: Well, obviously, the, the Saudis did not honor the request, but the fact that the request was made is curious. And in, in fact, I, I do believe that we had a president recently impeached for allegedly uh, directing foreign affairs in a way, or at least in trying to direct foreign affairs in a way that was going to help his election by hurting a candidate. But I want to take on this other issue. I know we'll get to that more later with the FACE Act, because you signed this letter uh, to Director Ray asking some pointed questions questions about their enforcement of the FACE Act. What are you looking for?
2: Well, we we want to see how overbroad they've been enforcing the FACE Act. And the FACE Act ex- itself, so so people get a feel for this, it's only supposed to be triggered if a state or local jurisdiction is in, unable to um, enforce local law with regard to these, these clinics. Well, the local law here um, in question, at least in in part, um, the law enforcement said there was no problem. So we want to know what in the world happened here. Why is the the, uh, DOJ and FBI getting involved in the first place? And second of all, uh, we want to get to find out uh, how they were involved and how these people came to be there. And then the third thing, and this is important to me particularly, is why did you use the kind of force level that you used against people who are, um, on the face of it, certainly non-criminal, non-careerist, non-violent, and probably you could have said, call them up on the phone and said, we need you to surrender at this time, and then they go in. The problem is the FACE Act is, in my opinion, is an incredibly bad, bad federal overreach in the first place.
1: Well, and there is... Uh... Evidence on the record of that representative of Schroeder from Colorado, who is a Democrat, who was a sponsor of the FACE Act, said on the floor of the House of Representatives during the debate for this legislation that it should only be used if there is reason to believe that the local authorities are not handling it. Now, there are four specific cases in which the Department of Justice has tried to enforce the FACE Act very recently against uh, pro-life advocates in all four of those cases, local authorities were aware of the situation. They had responded to them. In three of the four, they had they declined to press any ch- charges, even misdemeanor charges. And so that's the context of this, where local authorities evaluated the situation, they clearly handled it. And they said, there's nothing to see here. We're not going to do anything about it. And now suddenly the Department of Justice decides we're going to bring uh, charges that could result in years in prison for something that the local prosecutor didn't even think r- rose to the level of a misdemeanor. Now, part of this concern was we, we it was reported this week the Department of Justice created a special task force specifically to protect abortion. Is that relevant to this?
2: Yeah, I think it's I think it's actually directly related, and I think that's one of the things we want to find out. Um, my guess is we're going to have to get some FOIA requests in because they will deny giving us information because that's that's their way. But but you have a special task force to protect these abortion clinics, and at the same time, Joseph, as you know, you have uh, literally more than a hundred uh, pre- crisis pregnancy centers that have been targeted and abused far worse than these abortion clinics. And the bottom line is, this is not a federal issue, and the feds should get out of it. But if you're going to go after pro-lifers, then you better be also going after all of the people who are attacking everybody from uh, your U.S. Supreme Court justices to uh, crisis pregnancy centers. And that's that's part of the problem here. And when you set up a task force like that, the task force is going to naturally, immediately, justify its position, and that's what they're trying to do, I believe, here.
1: The concern is that this task force exists ultimately to just intimidate people who are pro-lifers, and that's that's the role that they have taken on. Of course, we want more information. We want to find out if there is some equity, um, but right now the facts do not look good uh, for this task force, for the Department of Justice, and the Biden administration. But uh, Congressman, I want to get to a couple other topics because the, several members of the Biden administration were meeting with leaders from the Mexican government uh, yesterday. To deal with what's happening at the border. He, uh, they claim to be making uh, progress. Here's Defense Secretary Anthony Blinken. Let's play clip one.
0: We've made significant progress,
2: reflected in unprecedented investments, legislation, law enforcement action. And these efforts have already made a tangible difference in the lives of Mexicans and Americans. Congressman Biggs, what progress is he referring to? No, who knows? Uh, only heaven knows because there's been no progress. And and, and when the secretary of state's out there making those wild claims, well, I know that you've got 5 million people that have come in since illegally into this country since uh, his administration has taken over. Uh, To me, that is a deflection. And quite frankly, it's a lie. And, And I hate to be so stark, but that's what it is. It is a lie because our border is not secure And Mexico is not safe any more than the U.S. is safe. The cartels control the border. And if they're going to tell that lie, then I just tell you, Joseph, um, you know, people like me who take folks down to the border, I've done even produced a documentary on this issue. They're not telling the truth because the truth is that the border is inhumane. It's dangerous. It's causing um, uh, crime and uh, people are being harmed and tortured on both sides of the border and its lawlessness and the cartels control the border, not Mexico and not the United States of America.
1: I've seen it referred to as
2: an emerging
1: third world country within the boundary of the United States. It really is bleak. And I think the tactic from the Biden administration is to deflect attention from there as much as possible. But Congressman Biggs, are there things that the Mexican government could be doing to help? Is this a, a valuable conversation to have?
2: It would be a valuable conversation if you had the right people negotiating with Mexico. Uh, The president down there, AMLO, he does not uh, fear or respect Joe Biden or his administration at all. But what you would be asking the Mexican government to do is to secure their own southern border, as well as to put uh, those 27,000 Mexican National Guard troops on both borders again. And what that did is that had an amazing salutary effect. Then you'd want them to get to... Uh, uh, reinstate the remain in Mexico policy. And if you did that, uh, those two policies in and of themselves would, would drastically reduce. And then you throw in things like Title 42 and and uh, build the border fence still. And you could actually bring this, this thing under control in just a matter of a few months, but not when the administration, our administration, wants an open border and uh, the Mexican government is not afraid uh, of of any action being taken against them for their participation and facilitation of the uh, of the open border that's happening in the United States today.
1: Secretary of Homeland Security Alejandro Mayorkas was also part of this event. Here's what he had to say about those who will enter illegally. Clip those
3: who attempt to cross the southern border of the United States illegally will be returned. Those who follow the lawful process we announced yesterday will have the opportunity to travel safely to the United States and become eligible to work here.
1: Congressman Biggs, that seems uh, reasonable in about 30 seconds. Is that a new policy?
2: Uh, It it, it is, because he's talking specifically about 27,000 Venezuelans. That's who he's talking about. But everybody else gets to come in anyway. So it's just hokum on the part of Secretary Mayorkas it's, it, he needs to he needs to go. He should either resign or be impeached.
1: Well, Congressman Biggs, we are going to continue to discuss this with you because it is a, a looming issue in the election. And I know in your state in particular, we're all curious to see how much this is in the mind of voters as they go uh, to cast their ballots this November. Thanks so much for being with us today, Joseph. Thanks so much. Coming up, we're gonna go to the state of Virginia, where a Virginia state delegate says that not affirming a child's gender confusion, their gender identity, should be a crime. And she wants to introduce legislation to make it one. We'll tell you all about it when we come back. Stay with us here on Washington Watch.
4: Learn more at frc.org forward slash life.
1: Welcome back to Washington Watch. I'm Joseph Backholm, sitting in for Tony today. The website is TonyPerkins.com. The Bible says children obey your parents, but a state delegate in Virginia intends to introduce legislation that would require parents to obey their children when it comes to their so-called gender identity. The proposed legislation would make it a crime for parents to not affirm their child's gender identity. It would expand the definition of child abuse to potentially make this a felony. Here's Virginia Delegate Elizabeth Guzman discussing her proposal with reporter Nick Minnick.
0: What could the penalties be? If, you know, the investigation concludes and it's concluded that a parent is not affirming of their LGBTQ child, what could the consequences be?
4: Well, we first have to have an investigation. You know, it could be a felony, it could be a misdemeanor, but we know that a CPS charge could
3: harm, you know, your employment, could harm your education.
1: Is this what the future looks like in Virginia? Joining me now to discuss this is Will Estrada president of the Virginia-based Parental Rights Foundation. He also previously served in the office for civil rights at the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Will, welcome to Washington Watch.
3: Joseph, thank you so much for having me on.
1: We're glad to have you. Now, let's be clear, the legislation has not yet been introduced, but clearly she's serious about it. Where did this idea come from?
3: So, Joseph, this idea actually came a few years ago. Uh, um, Delegate Guzman actually introduced this bill. It was House Bill 580 on January 8th, 2020. So uh, so a couple legislative sessions ago. The interesting thing, Joseph, is that this bill was introduced when the Democrats controlled the Virginia House of Delegates, and it was quietly, uh, Democrats joined with the Republicans, quietly tabled. So even in the uh, previous administration, this was before Glenn Youngkin was elected, there was no appetite in Virginia to adopt this. But I want to read for you, Joseph, what exactly this this proposed bill, which I think she's saying she's going to reintroduce in this upcoming 2023 legislative session here in Virginia. Here's what it says, because she's attempting to walk back what what she said. So it would amend um, Virginia code of dealing with abuse and neglect, which says abused or neglected child means any child less than 18 years of age. And under her proposed language, here's what it would do whose parent or other person responsible for his care creates or inflicts, threatens to create or inflict, or allows to be created or inflicted upon such child a physical or mental injury on the basis of the child's gender identity or sexual orientation. So here's the question for Delegate Guzman. What is a mental injury on the basis of the child's gender identity or sexual orientation?
1: You know, Will, I'll say this somewhat sarcastically, but I'm also serious. Would this create a legal obligation for a parent to obey their child?
3: It, this would create so many unintended consequences that I don't think we know what we what it would do. It would require every mandatory reporter, a doctor, a nurse, a teacher, to report someone if they suspect that they are abusing or neglecting a child by creating a mental injury on the basis of the child's gender or sexual orientation. And Joseph, here's what's deeply, deeply troubling to me. Uh, Delegate Guzman is a social worker, and uh, she should know the danger of of runaway investigations into just someone making an anonymous report of someone, of a child. Uh, there was this really great law review article. It's a little dated. It came out in 2005. It was by Doreen Coleman. She is a professor of law at Duke University School of Law. She wrote the article. You can just Google it. It's called Storming the Castle to Save the Children, the Ironic Costs of a Child Welfare Exception to the Fourth Amendment. It was published in William & Mary Law Review back in 2005. And what she said was the majority of intrusions on family privacy do not directly benefit the children involved, and in many instances actually cause them demonstrable harm. This is going to create just a vast amount of children who are being reported for mental uh, harm, again, however that is defined. And what's going to happen is children who are truly at victims of abuse they are going to fall through the cracks because of this uh, this just hijacking of the cps system in virginia if this bill were to become law
1: And you talk about the term emotional harm, right, or mental harm, whatever that is that's in the bill that would criminalize emotional harm. In theory, a parent refusing to use so-called preferred pronouns uh, could simply be enough emotional harm because that's a very subjective uh, concept to not just get CPS involved, but to potentially result in criminal penalties. And that's a step that they haven't taken in other contexts. We've seen parents lose custody over children uh, around this issue, but the idea of prosecuting a parent because they do not accept uh, what their child is saying about themselves would be a brave new world indeed. Now, Will, you mentioned the fact that this was introduced in a previous administration when the Democrats had control of Virginia. We also know that Glenn Youngkin got elected largely on a parental rights platform. Uh, Is there a stomach for something like this in Virginia? The good news for
3: the people who are listening is that this bill is dead on arrival. It couldn't pass when the Democrats had the House of Delegates in the Commonwealth of Virginia. It certainly, and, and, and you know, uh, Ralph Northam was the governor with Glenn in there, with Winsome Sears, with Attorney General Meares, with the Republicans having the majority in the House of Delegates, this bill is dead on arrival. But it's deeply concerning to me uh, that a social worker is even considering reintroducing this bill. Uh, Joseph, we have seen at Parental Rights Foundation the harm that children face um, in in these investigations. Here's what happens when a CPS investigation happens. A government official comes to the door and they say, you need to let me in so I can interview your children. And if you don't, I may need to go down to the local court to get an order to remove your children. It's terrifying to a family. It threatens their Fourth Amendment rights. It threatens harm to children. And it's deeply disturbing that Delegate Guzman would introduce or even consider introducing this bill.
1: Well, Delegate Guzman was asked by a local news station what she would say to those who say this is criminalizing parenting. And she said, quote, it's educating parents because the law tells you the do's and don'ts. So this law is telling you, do not abuse your children because they are LGBTQ, end quote. What's your response to that?
3: Joseph, abuse is a crime. It's already a crime. It uh, does not need to be changed. The the concern here, and that's why I read the this, this change of what her bill that was previously introduced would do, by putting in the words, or mental injury, it allows a social worker to go on a fishing expedition to find a judge who might not like the decisions that a parent makes and to potentially rip apart a family. Now, if the bill had just said you can't physically abuse your child on the basis of the child's gender identity or sexual orientation i don't think anyone would have any concern with that you never commit harm to a child no matter what goes on the problem is that mental injury we know where this is going it's if the uh if if the government doesn't like the parenting decisions or even what a a parent tells their child then she's threatening we will come in as the government and rip apart your family and that should be troubling to every single american in this country
1: thank you it is troubling we appreciate your time thanks so much We'll be right back with a story from Michigan when we come back.
0: Stay with us.
4: Are you a university student? Do you know a university student? Specifically one who wants to grow as a Christian leader to positively influence public policy and the culture? Look no further. Family Research Council has a life-changing 12- to 15-week internship program that has prepared and equipped students to take the next step in their professional journey.
1: Welcome back to Washington Watch. I'm Joseph Backholm sitting in for Tony today. This November, in the wake of the US Supreme Court's decision to strike down Roe versus Wade, the issue of abortion is on the ballot in five states across the country. Now, in Michigan, citizens will be asked to consider Proposal 3, the so-called Reproductive Freedom for All proposal. Now, the proposal, if passed, would codify abortion into the state's constitution. But as we'll discuss today, Proposal 3 goes even further. Joining me now to discuss this is John Bursch. He's the Alliance Defending Freedoms Senior Counsel and Vice President of Appellate Advocacy. He is also the former Solicitor General of the State of Michigan. John, good to see you today.
6: Good to see you as well. Thank you for having me on.
1: Now, first on the abortion part of this, what does Proposal 3 mean for unborn babies in Michigan?
6: Uh, it means that they're not gonna have any protection whatsoever. Uh, The act says that it allows abortion as a fundamental right in Michigan, and it, it purports to give the legislature authority to regulate after viability, which would typically be around 21 to 22 weeks. But it says notwithstanding the legislature's authority, if an abortionist decides in their professional judgment that the abortion procedure is necessary for the physical or mental health of the mother, then they can authorize the abortion anyway. And legal experts, as well as doctors across the spectrum recognize that a mental health exception like that essentially allows abortion on demand through nine months of pregnancy. If a woman was in the abortionist's clinic on the due date and said, I'm really stressed and anxious about having this baby, I'm not sure if I can handle having a child right now, I'm in college or I have job responsibilities, uh, then the abortionist could say, well, because of your mental health, you can have that abortion and courts and prosecutors would have to defer to their professional judgment. So it's an abortion on demand through all nine months of pregnancy and would wipe out existing Michigan law, existing since 1931, that protects life beginning at conception.
1: Now, to that point, a couple of specific provisions that currently exist in Michigan, they have a ban on partial birth abortion. It also, there is a law that protects babies who survive abortions. Would Proposition 3 impact those laws
6: it would it would almost certainly wipe off the partial birth abortion ban because it protects all manner of abortions it doesn't provide any room for the legislature to regulate in that respect um, in fact the legislature can't regulate at all unless it's to preserve the health of the mother not the dignity or the life of the unborn child um so, so certainly that would be gone and i'm sorry the second one was uh, oh the, the the born alive yes that, that would That's also right. be problematic uh because the the Um, constitutional provision specifically provides that uh, children don't have any rights unless they're born and can live without any extraordinary medical measures. And typically in a born alive situation, at a minimum, the infant would need uh, a feeding tube and oxygen and things like that. And those would be considered extraordinary medical measures. So that law too would almost certainly be invalid.
1: Now, John, recently we've seen growing concern that this has impacts far beyond the issue of abortion. Tell us about some of those.
6: Well, I'll start with the fact that it has no limitations when it comes to age. Uh, the Act specifically applies to every individual without limitation. And so that means a minor would be able to have an abortion without her parents' consent or even notification. Um, what's more, the Act defines or the, the provision provides that uh this right to reproductive freedom includes sterilization. So that meant if a teenage girl um, or boy wanted to have a sterilization for purposes of a gender change, then they would be able to get that too without parental consent or even notification. Keeping in mind, of course, that any other medical procedure that a child would have in Michigan would absolutely require their parents informed consent and approval. Um, In addition, the, the proposal has all kinds of other Crazy provisions in it. It says the state may not take any adverse action against anyone who assists in an abortion. On the one hand, that would protect the school counselor who takes a teenager to the abortion clinic for the abortion without informing the parents, no consequence for them for participating in that abortion. Or even if a non-medical professional was called in to assist in the abortion, there would be no consequences for them either. Um, maybe most incredibly, it even arguably removes any malpractice actions for mothers who are maimed or killed in the abortion procedure in addition to their child uh, under that same proceeding because or provision, because uh, after all, a state judgment in a malpractice action is a state action. And if the state cannot take any adverse action against someone who participates in an abortion, then a malpractice lawsuit can't even get off of square one. Um, So there's more, but those are some of the the ones that people are really talking about in Michigan right now.
1: And John, there's also some uh, conversation that this in fact creates a right to cross sex hormones as well. Is that part of this? Well,
6: certainly to the extent that cross sex hormones are understood to sterilize, uh, which they undoubtedly are, as a matter of medical science that's indisputed, uh, that would be included in that sterilization provision. And, And again, that means that a minor without any parental consent or notification would be able to access those kinds of life altering drugs.
1: John, we've got about a minute left. What's the future of this in Michigan? How are the voters responding to this debate and the new information that continues to come to the surface about what it will do?
6: Well, the early public polls were showing that the proposal was running ahead about two to one in favor of the yeses. Uh, But as this information has continued to be really broadcast to the public, primarily through churches and private communication, because the mainstream media is very reluctant to publish or print any of this information. Uh, My sense is that the tide is definitely churning. Uh, Just in my conversations with lots of individual peoples and in large group settings, uh, that as soon as people know how extreme this is they oppose it even for those who support abortion rights they recognize that this proposal which would be the most extreme codification of abortion and sterilization rights anywhere in the world uh, is too extreme and if if we're going to have any sensible regulation in michigan it cannot be proposal three
1: and we pray that uh, that will be defeated and that life will prevail john Birch, adf thanks so much for your time today
6: thank you have a good day.
1: Coming up next, our worldview conversation with David Clausen. We're going to break down Christian nationalism and some progressive religion. Stay with us.
5: What is biblical masculinity? In our culture of gender confusion, there aren't many examples of godly manhood. Men, husbands, and fathers need to find a model of godly manhood, leadership, and strength. But where can they find it in our culture?
4: Visit frc.org slash internships to apply.
1: Welcome back to Washington Watch. I'm Joseph back home sitting in Fort Tony. This Friday edition of Washington Watch. The website is TonyPerkins.com. I want to give you one more reminder of the need to get a voter guide and the easiest way to get your voter guide. Let's text the word guide to 677- 42 Let's text the word GUIDE to 67742, and within seconds, you will have a voter guide on your phone with all the information you need to make an informed vote. Again, text the word GUIDE to 67742. Now, earlier this week, the Family Research Council and Regent University held a town hall on the rise of the term Christian nationalism. It was a fascinating discussion, and if you missed it, I encourage you to check it out on demand at Pray, vote, Stand. Dot com. But joining me now to discuss some of what happened at the event and whether the right is actually any more religious than the left is, is David Kloss. And he's the director of the Center for Biblical Worldview at Family Research Council. David, good to see you today. Hey, great to be
8: with you, Joseph.
1: We're glad to have you. Now, we're going to talk about Christian nationalism. Uh, you're not in the D.C. office today. I'm a little suspicious that you're actually engaging in some Christian nationalism. Uh, <laughs> where are you today, David? What's going on? Yeah, that's a fair
8: fair point, Joseph. So yeah, I am actually in a Sunday school room right now at Iglesia Maña del Cielo Church, um, just down the road in Sterling, Virginia. Uh, tonight, there's actually uh, this church, along with other churches, have convened a gathering. They're expecting about 500 Hispanic leaders uh, throughout the Northern Virginia area uh, to talk about the role uh, that our faith should have when it comes to engaging political and cultural issues. Um, And so uh, I'm excited to be one of the speakers tonight. I think there are a lot of other pastors in the area. I think the lieutenant governor is going to be here. And so the the purpose of tonight is how do we help these Hispanic leaders uh, activate uh, their congregations to engage in the upcoming midterm election?
1: Now, David, listening to a lot of the chatter lately, uh, 500 pastors get together to talk about what they can do uh, in the political space. We should be very afraid on a scale of one to 10. How afraid should we be of this meeting? You're going to be there. But uh, is this the Christian nationalism we're supposed to be concerned about?
8: Well, I think it is, Joseph, um, because, then again, you know, wherever that term crops its head, it's interesting. We've talked about this before. You know, Christian nationalism seems to have replaced talk about the religious right or, or theocracy or something like that. You, you hear that almost every election season. Um, but I, I think uh, those of us, you know, those out there who criticized FRC's town hall event are certainly not going to be excited uh, when they hear us tonight. Uh, talking about uh, what the Bible says about issues. And what I'm going to share with the the audience tonight is it's true. The Bible doesn't speak to every issue we deal with in the public square, but there are some issues where there's a chapter and verse. Think of the issue of sexuality. Think of issues related to protecting unborn children. Uh, Sure. Those are political issues. Uh, But first and foremost, those are theological issues. Those are moral issues. And there's a thus saith the Lord. And so it's important for those who want to follow Jesus, who want to be uh, faithful uh, in their walk with the Lord to understand what the Bible teaches. And so, Joseph, everything I've just said probably is setting off the Christian nationalist alarm uh, to anyone that's watching who's afraid of that term.
1: Well, And that's the question I want to get into with you a little bit here, because you're right, it, it's a term that's thrown around, it's not always defined, it's unclear uh, when you cross the line between being just a, a Christian who's a, a concerned, engaged citizen in an appropriate way, and when you cross that line into the into the horrible uh, world of Christian nationalism. But there's also part of the debate, and one of the things that was discussed at the town hall this week in Leesburg was the the question of whether Christians should embrace that term. Now, there are some who say that you should. Now, Dr. Mark David Hall, he's from George Fox University. He was part of the town hall event. He said that we shouldn't necessarily embrace the term, and here's why. Let's listen to clip six
0: has not historically been our label. It's a term of the critics. And I think it's just so polluted that let's just let it let it let it be. We're Christians engaging in politics. We're uh, uh, advocating for liberty, justice for all for all Americans, not just for Christians. And we, we we just are not Christian nationalists. and We aren't interested in being called Christian nationalists.
1: David Coston, what's your reaction to that?
8: Yeah, I have some very dear friends, Joseph, who would embrace the term Christian nationalist, and what they mean by that is that they are Christian first and foremost. Their allegiance is to the Lord Jesus Christ, and they see themselves as patriotic Americans. Um, I think there's some terms worth fighting for. For example, evangelical. I think that's a term that uh, is used with a lot of without definition, but that's one I think we should fight for. Personally, for me, I'm not going to go to bat necessarily for the term Christian nationalist as just as a label as a title. I think others might. Uh, For me, though, I want to, because a lot of baggage has been attached to it, I just want to say I'm a Christian first and foremost, and I care about the government, I care about the culture, I care about people because God cares about people, and I want people to think uh, accurately and faithfully. Uh, So that's kind of where I fall on that question.
1: I don't necessarily think there's a biblical reason to oppose the term Christian nationalism, but because it's so loaded culturally, I don't know that it does anyone any favors. Now, we are Christians. We do care about it. But just recognizing how loaded that term is, I don't know that it benefits the the cause of truth, the cause of goodness, the cause of beauty to run around with this flag that is generally misunderstood, even if inappropriately so. So I think that's an interesting commentary that that, that Dr. Hall makes yeah. there. It's more of a, um, perhaps a messaging, a political argument than it is a biblical argument, but I think it's, it's one worth considering, and certainly the church is going to continue debating this. Yeah. But David, I'm going to talk also— about the way that this term is applied. Um, there's several examples that I think are going to illustrate a problem that we have. Doug Mastriano is the Republican governor, gubernatorial candidate in Pennsylvania. And uh, recently, he's taken a lot of heat because in the course of his campaign, he called for prayer and fasting. Now, hes if you call for prayer and fasting, you're clearly a committed Christian of some type, right? Not Uh, You don't do that if you're a secularist. So he is certainly a man of faith. And so he did that as part of his campaign. He did it publicly. He received a lot of criticism. If you doubt that, go to Google, Google Doug Mastriano and see what they have to say about him lately. Couple other anecdotes, though, I want to address because very famously, Gavin Newsom has put some Bible verses on his billboards advertising abortion. He went into seven states, used campaign funds, telling people to come to California to get your abortions. And when he did so, he quoted Mark 12:31: Love your neighbor as yourself. There's no greater commandment as these, than these. This is the clear implication is that loving your neighbor means helping them get abortions. That's a Mm. religious, theological, biblical argument that he's making on billboards as the governor of California. Now, in addition to that, uh, Raphael Warnock, uh, he refers to himself repeatedly as a pro-choice pastor recently while talking about the issue of abortion. He said, so I trust women in their wisdom to sit with their own doctor. And if they choose to sit with their pastor and to pray about that and let their own conscience guide them, he said, even God gave us a choice. So his argument, and it's a theological argument that he's making, is that God gave us a choice. And because he gave us a choice, exercising that choice is somehow honoring to God, even if that is the choice of abortion. So long wind up to a question I'm actually going to ask, Uh, and and the question might answer itself, but it's worth understanding. Why is it Christian nationalism and super scary when Doug Mastriano calls for prayer and fasting, but nothing, uh, nothing burger when Raphael Warnock or Gavin Newsom use explicitly overtly religious language in arguing for their progressive positions? Yeah, that's right, Joseph. And I think that background is
8: actually really helpful because it does show that these critics are pretty insincere in their criticism. You're right. Uh, Someone like Doug Mastriano, who's a committed Christian, he starts quoting Bible verses on the campaign trailer, talking about prayer and fasting. It's terrible. You know, uh, Bill Maher and uh, Trevor Noah and all the late night liberal comics, you know, uh, led with that and and talked about how this is a form of Christian nationalism that's potentially uh, subversive to democracy and dangerous. And then the governor of California does what he does. You see Raphael Warnock repeatedly making the arguments he does. So at the very least, Joseph, it shows that these critics um, of, of making theological arguments uh, when it comes from the right, uh, they're quick to judge those on the right for making theological and biblical arguments in the public square. It shows that their criticism is, at the very least, if, I, if I'm being as charitable as I can, it shows that it's insincere uh, because then one of, when those of their own tribe then make theological arguments. And make no mistake, what Raphael Warnock is doing, he's making a theological argument, in my opinion, a bad theological argument, one that's contrary to what the scripture teaches, but it's nonetheless a theological argument. and when he makes it, you hear critics or crickets uh, from those who are you know want to jump on those of us on the right. So I, I think it does show at the end of the day um, all this fear-mongering about Christian nationalism is a lot to do about nothing.
1: And I think it illustrates the fact that those who cry the loudest about the threat of Christian nationalism aren't really concerned about people who say they're Christians applying their values to public policy. They're just afraid of of anything that could be a threat to their political power. So left-wing Christian nationalism is totally okay. Right-wing Christian nationalism is a threat to democracy. And what that proves is that they're not actually concerned about Christian nationalism. They just want to... uh, they, they want to shame their political opponents into retreating from the battlefield so that they can legislate their morality and force everybody else to do what they want to do. But this point was addressed also at the town hall, the, the Christian Nationalism Town Hall on Wednesday by former representative uh, Michelle Bachman. Uh, she was part of this event. Let's play clip seven. And she spoke to this a little bit. Christian nationalism is a pejorative term, a negative term. We need to understand that, but we also need to know that they're very specific. They're going after pastors to encourage pastors, don't have Fourth of July services, don't honor and recognize veterans don't have things about America or America's founding in your country. This is happening at pastors' conferences in different seminaries. So this is happening right now. That's why pastors need encouragement from congregants. David Klossin, do you agree that pastors are being discouraged from simply celebrating America? I, I do agree with uh, the former Congresswoman Joseph Um
8: conversations that I have with uh, pastors around the country and this year actually I've traveled quite a lot uh, talking to pastors. and I do hear that that uh, there's this tension. Uh, You know, the pastors, their first and foremost obligation is to the church. They want to feed people God's word. Uh, And because of all this fervor and controversy about politics, um, a lot of them seem shy or reluctant to, to talk about the country and to talk about God's providence and goodness into this nation and even the issues. And so I think that's why it's important to do what FRC did on Wednesday to talk about this. And it's important that when, you know, we go around the country and talk to pastors to make sure we're encouraging them. And when we talk to just good Christian people, uh, to encourage them to encourage their pastor, it's okay to love God and the church. That's first and foremost, but to love this country. There's a lot of good things uh, to celebrate about this country. Are we perfect? Of course not. Uh, but God's goodness and kindness, uh, we can see all throughout our history. So I, I think we can you know, walk and chew gum at the same time. We can love the Lord and also talk about the good things this country has done and seek to improve
1: it uh, in areas where we can. And if there is an element of truth in in the criticism is that we do not, and this point needs to be made, we do not want to fall into political idolatry. That is a trap. It's real. We don't want to put our country, our love of country above our love of God. So our loyalties are misplaced. That can happen. It has happened. We've all probably seen examples of that. So that's the qualifier of all of this. But there's nothing wrong, of course, with loving your country. Uh, There is something wrong with denying it's ever done anything wrong and our loyalties can't be blind. Uh, But there's nothing wrong with loving your country as long as you don't love your country, Uh, more than you love Jesus. But David, we all know that the religiosity from the right is super scary. But we've seen some evidence lately that the left is maybe just as religious as we are. I want to play this clip from the University of Minnesota Medical School. Let's play clip eight, and I want to react to this.
2: Our institution is located on Dakota land. Today, many indigenous people throughout the state, including Dakota and Ojibwe, The Twin Cities home. We also recognize this acknowledgement is not enough. We commit to uprooting the legacy and perpetuation of structural violence deeply embedded within the healthcare system. We recognize inequities built by past and present traumas rooted in white supremacy, colonialism, the gender binary, ableism, and all forms of oppression. Now, what you
1: just heard there, and it's much more powerful if you're viewing it. For our viewers, you get a different sense of this than those who are just listening there. But to clarify what you just heard, the speaker in that clip is Dr. Robert Englander. He's Yale Med School, a master's in public health from John Hopkins, a residency, residency at the Children's Hospital Medical Center, a Harvard fellowship as well. He is leading a group of medical students at the University of Minnesota. What makes this look super like a cult is that they're all in their white medical coats, right? they standing, they're reciting something. Now, I've been part of something similar because I've gone to church and I've recited the Apostles' Creed with people. But David, when we see this, it feels very religious to me. Why is it, I mean, is the left becoming an actual real religion with liturgies and holidays and and saints?
8: I think so, Joseph, and it just speaks to the fact that everyone has a worldview. Everyone has a vision of what the good, the true, and the beautiful uh, is. Everyone has an understanding of right and wrong, and increasingly on the left, uh, this anti-God, almost Gnostic worldview uh, animates everything they do. So it is, you know, increasingly the catechesis, uh, the ceremonies, the saints, you're going to see that on the left, and it's important to
1: point that out. Yeah. You know, David, uh, we have Christmas. They have Pride Month. They sing, imagine, we sing, how great thou art. We recite the Apostles' Creed and they recite whatever that was. But let's just understand the religious nature of that. This isn't between the religious and the secular necessarily, these are competing religions. And the more we understand that, the less vulnerable we are to people who say, Christian nationalism, Christian nationalism, in an attempt to shut us up because they're just wanting to fill the void that they hope we create. David, thanks for being with us today. Thank you, Joseph. And friends, we thank you for being with us today and all week. We look forward to seeing you again on Monday. Until then, fear God, but nothing else.
0: Washington Watch with Tony Perkins is brought to you by Family Research Council and is entirely listener supported. Portions of the
1: show discussing candidates are brought to you by Family Research Council Action.